Welcome to the Conscious Woman Podcast. This is your host, Pavna Dur. Our goal with this podcast is to bring you interesting and insightful conversations on a range of topics that will support you in both living and leading more consciously. From conscious leadership and conscious inclusion to conscious eating, conscious parenting and conscious fashion. This podcast is in conjunction with the leadership development work that we do to support women leaders in leading with mindfulness and compassion. To learn more, please go to shinomics.com. My guest today is Radhika Gupta, the CEO of Edelweiss Asset Management. She is India's only female head of a major asset manager and has set up the country's first domestic hedge fund. Radhika was born to a diplomat father and with her family, she moved across continents. She was born in Pakistan where she had complications at her birth because of which she says she has a weird tilt to her head and jokingly refers to herself as the girl with the broken neck. In this conversation, Radhika talks more about the choices she has made that defined her journey to becoming a CEO, how she views leadership, and what is the impact that she would like to make. Radhika, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation today. It's such a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me and it's such a delight to be on this conversation. Thank you, Radhika. To frame the conversation, uh, I have to share with you one of the first few videos that I watched of yours uh, title is titled The Girl with the Broken Neck. Uh, I absolutely love the video and I have to say you're such a brilliant storyteller. Um, and I would love for you at the outset to just share with us where that phrase comes from because I do believe it speaks volumes about who you are. So can you can you tell us a little bit more about that? So I'll tell you about the phrase and then I'll, maybe I'll tell you about the process of the video because I think the phrase is a little random. Um, but uh, so I haven't been a public speaker most of my life. Uh, I was actually quite terrified of being on the stage uh, for a bulk of my life. And uh, I was brought up in a, you and I share the same background in a background that's very formal where we're not very expressive of our stories and let alone our problems. And I think that's how we've been brought up in India, especially as Indian women. I mean, I just think you're not taught to say, hey, you know, these are my struggles. Um, I went to a workshop by a guy called Captain Raghu Raman, and he did this whole workshop on the importance of storytelling and the importance of being a more vulnerable leader. And Bhada, I've been to so many trainings in my life, but somehow this stuck with me. I mean, I'm usually very cynical about trainings. I'm like, okay, not another boring training session, but those two days stuck with me. And I shared some of this story in those training sessions as a mock thing. And then we decided to go out and tell this story on a public platform. Um, and I don't know why I did it. I mean, some of these things you just do for a lark. And then um, when I did the live event, I saw the reaction. There were about 500 people in the room. So we saw the reaction to the audience. And then we were thinking, you know, coming back to your question about how to name this video. And this title just came up, The Girl with a Broken Neck. And, you know, it was... It was very organic. And then we decided it's not the woman with a broken neck because it's really the story of a girl coming to terms 
with her challenges. I also think as women, and I've still gone through, by the way, after this with broken neck, you know, we're so scrutinized for our looks. Um, and that was something I've gone through as a child. Um, and in fact, my brother, like when I was in my early teens, and those are kind of cruel years for girls, he would always like joke about my broken neck. So, I mean, he was the one who named it a broken neck. So, you know, the, the title is credit to him in some sense. But we said girl with a broken neck because at some level, everyone's broken, right? I mean, you have a broken neck, you have a broken something. So that's where it came from. It was very organic. And, you know, they asked me, are you okay with the title? And I said, I kind of love it. Beautiful. And and I just as you said, I, I love that you have embraced that part of your story and you've shared it with such vulnerability, which is absolutely beautiful. On the, along those lines, I'd love for you to share a little bit more about the early years of your life, uh, the first, say, 10 to 15, because those early years do shape who we are. And I know you've had a fascinating childhood. So can you share with us what stands out in your mind from that time in your life uh, that's really influenced who you are today? So I, I think being a foreign service kid, I mean, if I look at it now, I wish, and I don't have kids, I wish they had the childhood that I did because it's just so unique. I think the kind of, I don't think I thought this when I was four years old, let me be honest, but now I just think I had the most blessed childhood on earth because I think the fact that we moved, so I was born in Pakistan um, and, you know, we moved country to country like all foreign service kids do every three years. And sort of the beautiful thing about the democracy of the foreign service is you move from good country to bad country and bad to good. And I think it's a great metaphor for life too, right? Because you have good phases and you have bad phases and, you know, it, one of the things that foreign service teaches you is one, the ability to handle change really well. I mean, I remember in Pakistan, I grew up not speaking any English because I spoke Urdu and Hindi at home and distinctly moving to the US and just absolutely struggling with English and going to a public school and then learning English. And then I remember moving back to Delhi after that uh, in the middle and applying to Delhi public school and anyone from Delhi knows how Delhi public school is and just flunking the third standard Hindi exam because I didn't know any Hindi because in the US, what they had done, my parents had just tried to teach me English. So we went through that constant change. And then I moved to Nigeria, which was very random. I think by the time I was, so till I was about eight or nine, I wasn't even sure of what my father's profession was. I was like, okay, he's a guy moving country to country. But I remember landing in Lagos and the plane announcing that Deputy High Commissioner Yogesh Gupta has landed and his family is with him. And I was like, oh, my father's someone, you know, he, he kind of has something. And that's when I kind of understood his profession. Um, and then again, Nigeria was a super different experience because Indian schools in that sense are very nice and simple. I went to an American school for the first time in Nigeria. And that I think makes you conscious of a lot of things. So I remember my Nigeria phase being, and I've talked about this in the video, probably the toughest one. Because one, I was very very insecure about my looks. Um, I was very chubby. I had these thick braces and these thick glasses. And I was an absolute tomboy. So, I mean, I didn't care about how I looked. And I was surrounded by women who just looked beautiful. So I was very insecure about my looks uh, through that phase. I also became very conscious of the fact that my father was not rich in that phase. Um, because, you know, in an Indian school, I mean, you have kids from all kinds of backgrounds, which is great. But 
you know, the government pays for your schooling, but everyone else around you is just super rich. So I became very conscious of those kind of things. Um, and I struggled with that for the probably next four or five years. And now I've come to terms with all of it. I think the girl with a broken neck was me coming to terms with a lot of that stuff, finally. Um, but I think, no, I'm glad for the childhood. I think the early years have taught me to embrace change very fast. And second, make the best of whatever situation there is. Um, you know, I recall Nigeria as being one of my parents' favorite postings. Um, and, you know, I mean, you've lived there. It sounds like a horrible place, right? You can't, at that point, you couldn't buy clothes. You couldn't go out. There were so many security issues. There's no milk in Nigeria. I mean, we drank milk powder for three years. Anyone who's lived in Nigeria knows that. But we remember it as a very, very happy time. And I think that's, it's not about the cards you're dealt. It's about what you make of the cards. I think the foreign service and my background teaches you that. I think that's so valuable today. Yes, and I, I remember living close to the beach uh, in, in Lagos. So it, it, it also was very beautiful. Oh, yeah. Uh, in sense. Um, you also talk about how during that time you took up a really interesting hobby. You are an, you became an expert player at bridge and that had some interesting uh, results for you later on in life. Can you share that story? Yeah. And uh, I think uh, that story is probably the single story from the talk that's connected the most, but I learned bridge because we were stuck at home in Nigeria and as you know from living in Nigeria, there's nowhere to go. I mean, you, you couldn't go out after six o'clock. There was one mall in Lagos. It was called 21st Century Mega Plaza and it showed pirated movies. So effectively, there was nothing to do. So my poor parents, what do they do with two young kids? I mean, I was probably 11, 12. My brother was eight. I mean, you teach them something to entertain them. And they taught us cards because they knew how to play that. And um, we... Obviously, we've learned it very reluctantly, but we still play bridge till now. And uh, I played bridge all through my growing up years. It also worked well because we were a family of four. And, you know, even when my dad left Nigeria, we could do things as a family of four. I mean, one of the challenges of foreign services, you don't get to make friends. And those were not eras of Facebook and email and tech connectivity. So bridge worked really well. I'm also a little bit of a nerd. So I guess, you know, the whole thing made sense. Um, but yeah, I mean, the story you're referring to is that uh, after seven rejections of consulting firms, uh, the eighth job I got at McKinsey actually landed up being a function of being a half decent bridge player because my interviewer happened to be a tournament level bridge player. And I just think life has a strange way of connecting the dots. So I, I keep telling my team today that nothing you do is ever useless. Nothing you do in life is ever useless. It will find a way to come together. And I think the other lesson from that story for me also is that, you know, you don't need, so I grew up very insecure about the fact that I don't know how to sing or dance or do like all the traditional stuff that little Indian girls do. But I don't think you have to do that, right? Whoever you are, your own uniqueness. I don't think everyone's looking for a dancer. And McKinsey taught me this. You could be an astronaut or you could be a lawyer or you could be a singer or you could be a dancer, but you just have to excel at what you do and that unique you. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I, I love that, that story because it is so much about a celebration of embracing all these unique quirks uh, and facets that we all have. So you began your career in consulting and moved into finance. And I know you eventually moved back to India to start the 
from what I understand, the first registered hedge fund in India. Could you walk us through what was the thought process behind some of these decisions? Because these early decisions that we make in our career do say a lot about how we view risk, how we view failure. So I'd be curious to know how you went about making those transitions. Yeah, no, and I think you make a great point. I think uh, these decisions, when you look at them in retrospect, speak about how you think about risk. And um, so the decision to move from McKinsey to finance was a little random, I would say. Uh, I had done a one and a half year stint at McKinsey. And I think, you know, back to our early background, yours and mine, I, I came from a world where I saw a lot of change. So I like change frequently. I like pushing myself. Um, and I think that's why finance happened. I mean, and I, I knew the team at AQR, they were all pen guys. So that's what that happened. The India decision is a more interesting one. I mean, 2008 happened and both my husband and I, and he was a co-founder of the firm with me, we actually survived the layoff cycle. So that was a big relief because you were like, okay, I'm this international student. I haven't got laid off. And yet we decided in late 2008 that we want to come back to India. Now, Nalin has lived in India and my other partner also had lived in India, born and brought up in India. I haven't lived in India as, as you know, from my background. So for me, it was very random. Um, I think the seeds were just to come back home and try. And, you know, at that point, there was a lot of buzz about India and growth. And the idea was to come back and try and do something on your own. I have to say it wasn't such a thought out decision. I mean, I always say that, you know, I was 24 then, right? There is an element of hunger and foolishness that shows up. But I would also say it was not stupid risk. So one of the things we did think about was what if this fails? Um, and for me, and because me and Nalan both come from very, very middle class families. Um, so we said, okay, we don't have MBAs. We can go back for an MBA. We have enough undergraduate education, enough savings that we could actually go back and get an MBA. You know, I mean, I, I also want to be practical about this. You know, I mean, you have parents, you have dreams, they have all that. There's an ecosystem. So it was a risk, but it was a thought out risk. Now, thankfully, the risk worked out and it materialized. But that's how we went thinking about the decision. You know, when I look back on it 10 years later, it's 2009 when we moved back. Now I think of it as really risky. Now I'm like, you know, would I do that again? Uh, but as I said, I think, you know, in your 20s, you also don't have many liabilities. I mean, the other thing I would tell girls is that I was able to take that decision because I had also saved money very aggressively at 21, 22, and 23. And I'm a finance professional, so they'll say this. You know, the best thing you can start doing when you earn is not spend that much money on a handbag and actually save some money. Because when it comes time to take that big leap, you won't need to ask your parents or your father or your father-in-law or husbands or anybody for an option. And money does help you you know, make dreams come true. So I think that was one very, very thought out aspect. Absolutely. So you, you um, were running Forefront Capital, which later then got uh, acquired by Edelweiss. Uh, how was that transition like for you, especially in terms of going literally overnight to um, having far greater responsibilities managing a much larger firm uh, and especially being a young CEO how did you think about that transition and that phase so the transition wasn't immediate I mean 
one when i joined Edel, when we sold the company to edelweiss there was a lot of nervousness because we had never worked for an indian company before and you know there is some of this oh it will be lala culture and then some people told me they'll eat you up and thankfully they have not eaten me up and there's all this hesitation about selling your company i mean one of the things i would tell you is that entrepreneurship is a state of mind it's not a state of employment i feel very much uh, you know an owner of the business i run today in a professional ceo capacity uh, and i feel as much passion for the business as i did when i was an entrepreneur so i i don't believe this definition of entrepreneurship you know that you went from being a startup to be an being an employee i don't buy that argument in today's day and age as far as the ceo ship so when i transitioned to edelweiss i was overseeing the same business for some time and then uh edelweiss mutual fund and i don't come from a mutual fund background i come from a hedge fund background and while it sounds similar they're actually very different the hedge fund industry caters to is complex complex investing for institutional and sophisticated clients the mutual fund industry is hardcore retail products for mass indians it's a very very different thing somehow in my head um i was pretty sure i actually want to do retail which you know i mean many of my bosses looking at my background are like listen you've grown up abroad and like worked in new york we just can't see you wearing a sari and going to bihar and like talking to distributor i was like but that's what that's what my heart is in um and so edelweiss mutual fund at that point actually acquired another mutual fund by jp morgan and i got involved in that merger um and somewhere through that merger i actually told management i want to become ceo and i mean i'm highlighting this point because i just think women don't ask for enough opportunities i say this in every forum that i get to speak at please ask for opportunities you know you're a young woman no one's going to dream you're a young woman with no mutual fund experience you're 33 you've lived abroad who is going to dream of giving you a ceo role until you don't express interest in it so you have to go out and ask for opportunities that make sense for you um and i did that uh, and i was fortunate enough to get it um and i'm wading my way through the opportunity i'm a first time leader to be honest um i don't believe leadership is taught in business schools it is definitely taught uh in the battlefield and i'm wading through it um and i'm making my mistakes and i have my learnings but net net it's been a lot of fun uh i do have my weird moments of being the sole young girl which we can talk about separately um but no i'm i'm loving the experience and what have been some of the biggest learning so far since you mentioned it, it it is a learning experience it is something you're doing for the first time what's what's been what what have been some of the most interesting challenges and learnings for you so far what well, one a ceo's job is not super glamorous but on a more serious note i think 50% of your job is actually hr um i think if you think about a ceo's role um it's not strategy and vision and all the stuff i dreamt and learned at school it's just about making a smart group of people and competent group of people come together and work together efficiently that is easier said than done and i genuinely think i play 50% of an hr role i think if you can hire right uh give people clear direction and keep them motivated through bad times 90% of your job is done um and that has been the learning um i think the second learning which you kind of alluded to is that uh leadership that is corner office and sitting far away from people and being inaccessible 
that that style of leadership doesn't work for me for me it's about being vulnerable being out there being accessible to my people sharing my burden with them sharing the bad days asking for help um it's a much more accessible emotional model of leadership it has its downsides to be honest um but that's what works for me great that actually leads me to the the next thing which i did want to ask you because when we look at the financial industry fortunately we we do see a lot more women at the top um and i was curious to hear your view on based on what you have seen and also of course your own experience that you're relating to do you believe gender plays a role in how one leads in in terms of do you believe being a woman confers certain advantages or certain strengths which we can leverage to lead um in a diff- in, in a different way ideally in a better way um what has what has your experience been so i think one financial services is very blessed because it's a super professional industry um and i think indian financial services is as good or maybe better than us financial services having experienced both as an employer for women um so i think you know kudos to us i still think we are very short on women despite what you said um you had a period when you had a lot of banking ceos but i think you know that was a contribution of one or two individuals and huge credit to kv kamath for what he did there but we're severely wanting i mean most times i go to conferences i'm the sole girl on the panel talking to an audience entirely of men uh, so i think we have a lot of way to go there as far as gender look i am a firm believer that being a woman is an asset if you want it to, to be an asset and it's a liability if you want it to be a liability if you look at what has happened around us forget financial services perhaps the most lasting memory of covid and the period we're in is feminine leadership i mean the six seven countries who handled covid well had strong women leaders at the helm and i don't think that's a coincidence um i did not talk about this once but i think if you look at the skill sets of the future they are feminine skill sets not to say that they can't be found in men but they are naturally female skill sets i mean and their skill sets that you learn from your mother and grandmother like you know if you talk about being a vulnerable leader and taking care of each member of your team i mean just think about the fact that my mom managed my father's parties and you know dealing with my annoying little brother in nigeria and getting him clothes made and dealing with getting prom dresses made for me and dealing with her in-laws and she dealt with every member of her team in a very different way i mean now howard writes stuff about that but mom did that if you look at creativity if you look at customer service i mean every woman who serves food to her family on the dining table is not asking someone you know how much dal did you have she's asking each person how was the quality of the dal and many days in my house i have seen my mother even without house help making three different meals to take care of three different customers i mean customized service all this stuff is natural to female leadership in fact even money management and budgeting um indian women ironically used to get money to and you relate to this from nigeria um indian women have gotten household money to spend and we've done a great job managing the household with limited resources while keeping money on the side and yet we don't issue press releases about how we are cost conscious and we are meeting targets etc etc in fact my mom did such a good job of this that when we were in nigeria 
she saved up all this cash and she actually left it in a drawer to hide it from my father and then the servants robbed it. So there was a huge robbery in the house and it was unveiled, which was quite a disaster. Um, and then it was unveiled in a bigger way in demonetization when that happened in India. But Indian women are good at a lot of skills that the workplace actually needs. So I think feminine leadership is an asset if you use it right. Absolutely. And, and completely agree with you that that is the way of the future, uh, at least as far as those feminine qualities and feminine traits are concerned. And of course, men can have them as well, as you said. Um, of course, as women, we, we do tend to lean more towards those values, uh, although we still need to harness them with intention. Having said that, given that is the way of the future and given all that we bring to the table, as, as you just shared with, with uh, so many examples, what are your thoughts on how we uh, create gre greater parity for women at all levels, of course, at the top, but... Uh, at all levels within the organization, how do we really uh, create the grounds for, for, for more women to be able to contribute at that level? So I think, there are, I mean, this is, this is a long, I mean, this is a topic you can debate, but I think there are a few thoughts. There are things we have to do as women. There are things some of us have to do as female leaders of companies. And there are things that should be done, I think, at the policy level and broader level. And no movement to bring women into the mainstream is going to happen without men being a part of it, because the fact is they are also the majority. Um, I think as women, one, uh, we have to continue to ask for what we need at the workplace, whether it is in terms of opportunity, whether it is in terms of compensation, whether it is in terms of a little time off uh, during those critical years of maternity leave without being told to sacrifice our career. Um, so I think we need to go out and ask, and I don't think many of us ask, and I think we are tremendously guilty. You can't expect people to look out for your career. You have to look out for your career. I think as management, and you know, maybe I'm in that place now, um, there isn't enough recognition that adding a woman or having more women is not just about picking a diversity checkbox. I mean, some of that has happened, but it's actually about improving the kind of team you have. It's about, it's actually about improving the bottom line because a more diverse team directly benefits the bottom line. And until you see the economic upside of having women on your team, you will not take it seriously because nobody in corporate India or corporate anywhere does anything for social causes. So I think we have to realize that. Um, and we have to make it easier for women to continue in employment. So I think that is something that we can do in corporate India. You know, movements, unfortunately, like Me Too or a lot of stuff that have happened have only, unfortunately, while they've made workplaces safer in some way, they've also added to the paranoia about hiring women in the workplace. Um, I see it all the time in my team. People will ask questions about, you know, should we hire a girl? What if we have to travel? What if she reports a complaint against me? So we have to be very, very conscious as leaders about not, and it just, it can't end at the boardroom, right? It has to go to the line hiring manager. I mean, I can tell the team to hire 50% women, but if people are not comfortable with it, it's not going to go anywhere. Um, well, I think that's what we can do as managers. And thirdly, and I've been saying this at a policy level, every time you put a rule in place that you think is good for women, think about the economic impact on it again. Like that six-month maternity leave policy, while it's well-intentioned, 
has probably scared so many SMEs away from hiring women. There was that mandatory dropping women off after 10 o'clock. All this stuff increases the cost of hiring women. So as policymakers, we also need to be a little wiser about the economic cost because no employer is going to go out of the way if it doesn't hit his bottom line. Absolutely. Um, and, and on that point, um, as you rightly said, it's, it's um, not just um, a nice to have um, in terms of adding more women to the workforce. It actually does improve the bottom line. What are some of the best practice that best practices that you might have seen or maybe you are implementing yourself in terms of improving the culture in organizations so that women really feel like they have the right kind of supportive environment to really thrive in. Because if you look at the latest research around what can really help women advance, a lot of factors are pointing to culture playing a huge role. So yes, absolutely, as women, we have to take ownership of our part. And as you said, we have to ask for uh, the things that we want. But equally, um, it is uh, important to fix the workplace uh, as well. So what have you seen as far as what are some of the most effective interventions um, that can really help to that end? So I think this is a great point. And I think, you know, I'm glad you mentioned culture because a lot of the discussions around women in the workplace focus on maternity leave, which is important and which I'll talk about, but culture matters. Um, one is I think, and I come from financial services, which has had a very alpha male culture. And I don't think movies like Wolf of Wall Street, etc., do a great job for us. I mean, they do a huge disservice to women wanting to enter this profession. Um, I think we've just tried to keep a culture where it is okay to be expressive. I mean, I'll give you this example. I have cried at work multiple times. I have seen girls cry at work multiple times. Now it's not something desirable, but it happens. And I think a lot of men on my team would say, oh, you know, she's emotionally immature. She can't handle her emotions. She's crying. And I would say back to them that, you know, if it's okay for a guy to swear on the floor because he had an outburst, not that that's right then why isn't it okay for a woman once in three months to just cry and let her be? I mean, why do you have to judge that kind of behavior? So I think just accepting that different kind of people can react to things differently is a lot nicer because I used to cry at the workplace. I've had these moments and I would feel terribly judged. I mean, I cried in one annual appraisal and then for the longest time I was like, is my career finished? Because I just cried in my annual appraisal. So I think that's one thing. Um, the second thing we've tried to do is make more men more conscious of some of the statements that we make. Um, for instance, when a girl on our floor, and I've heard this, and I'm, I'm sharing real examples. Whenever a woman gets pregnant, there's a narrative that starts that she's not going to come back. Why should that narrative start? And so every time I try to hear that narrative, I cut that narrative out. Whether she comes back, whether she does not, it is her decision. Who are we to try and sit and predict if someone will come back? Don't make a three-month event in someone's life, you know, a big thing about careers, etc. So I think that's the second thing that we've tried to do in terms of culture. And I think third, having more women leaders will bring more women leaders. We've seen that in the system. 
Um, if you have one women leader, you will have more women leaders just because they'll feel comfortable working there. More people will be conscious of their behavior and more women will be trying to pull the, them up. Um, one women's day, we usually call external speakers and have done the standard stuff on women's day at a for a while. Last women's day, we decided not to do any of it. Uh, all of the girls on my team and there were about 20, 30 of us, we got together in a room and we just shared stories. Um, we shared stories of what we liked at the workplace. We shared stories of mothers and mother-in-laws. We shared stories of the sacrifices that some people had made to come to work. And the session went on for two and a half, three hours. And it was just a very open, vulnerable session where people felt very connected. Um, so that's what we're trying to do. Wonderful. And that sounds like uh, a great way to celebrate Women's Day, in fact. So since you are in the financial industry and, and you touched upon this earlier as well uh, about the value of uh, us as women also becoming mindful of how we are thinking about our own financial independence, how we're managing our money. Um, what have, and, and sadly, not all of us do that. I think I've been guilty of this uh, for large parts of my life as well. What's, what's your advice as far as how we can start to become more mindful of how we, uh, of our relationship with money. Ah, I'm glad you asked me this. So one, I don't think money is something we should outsource, money management. Mm -hmm. One, because it is not difficult. As I said, we have all the skill sets to do it. And I don't think we need, um, men create this whole vibe that you need to be talking about Warren Buffett and looking at a Bloomberg terminal all the time to manage money. Managing money is the easiest thing to do. We have all the skill sets, patience, goal orientation, risk-taking ability. I mean, these are the basic skill sets you need to manage money. And in today's world, where there's so many resources out there to help you manage money, I don't think there's a question of skill set. The reason we need to do it is, unfortunately, and I've seen this in my own family, life is uncertain. You know, I have seen, and it breaks my heart, women with 20-year careers who left the money management to their husband and then something happened and you know the guy went and had an affair or something happened and it was unfortunate or there was a split and then they're left with nothing i mean life is just too uncertain and you work so hard to earn your money so the question is how do you do it I, there's no question of whether you should should or should not do it you should go out and manage your money I think educate yourself on the basics of money management. And as I said, there are tons of resources out there. Understand the different asset classes, what's stock, what's bond, what are mutual funds. Draw up a basic plan for yourself. What are my short-term goals? What are my medium-term goals? What are my long-term goals? And if necessary, please use professional advisory help. There's so much out there. In fact, there are great organizations that are run entirely by women meant for women investors uh, that you can talk to as well. There are some very capable women financial advisors as well out there that you can talk to and I think do a great job. So there's a lot of resourcing out there. Absolutely. So changing gears now and uh, would love to take a closer look at how you are uh, living your life on a day-to-day -day basis. Because if there's one thing I can say for sure is 
behind any woman's success, I'm sure, is a powerful set of habits and routines that she follows, uh, particularly, I'm sure, in your case, that is allowing you or creating the energy that you need to do everything that you're doing. So can you share with us what a day in the life of Radhika Gupta looks like in terms of is there something in particular that you do in the morning to begin your day? Is there something um, that you would do during the day uh, to keep you going or a particular way in which you end the day? So uh, it's not as exciting. And obviously pre-COVID and post-COVID is super different uh, because I haven't gone to work since the whole COVID started. Um, so in the pre-COVID days, I was traveling a lot. I'm a very hands-on person. So I was typically traveling two, three days a week. Um, so in the pre-COVID world, um, coffee is an essential. I don't have the best, best habits, but coffee is an essential. I grew up in Italy in part, and I'm obsessed with grinding and making my own coffee in the morning. And that is just like my thing. Even now, it's, it's, it's the thing to do. Um, the second thing I love to do, I'm a big advocate of formal wear, which is one of the things I've hated post COVID, but like going to work in your sari, And I think that half an hour, 45 minutes of getting ready and going to work and just looking good. It just makes you feel really good about the whole day. I mean, I am just not a jeans and t-shirt at work person. I'm, I, I'm a diplomat's daughter through and through on that one. Um, so those are the morning things. I think the, the day is very random. The day, what I love about my job, is it can have some media, it can have some investment meetings, it can have some HR situations, it can have some technology reviews, it could have some meetings with the regulator. It's just a combination of things that happen from morning to night that are not often sitting at a desk um, and the day just passes by and you don't know. Um, and uh, yeah, the evenings, uh, I am not a Netflix, Amazon kind of person. I like poetry and I like writing and I like reading. So. The end of the day is usually some of that outside the time I spend with my husband. Um, one new habit in the COVID times is cooking my own meals. My cook lives with me, but I love to cook. Um, so I am cooking my lunch and cooking dinner and being very creative there. So that's a lot of fun and very de-stressing. Nice. Although that sounds lovely. And as far as your interests are concerned as well, and, and you touched upon this briefly, um, you love writing. You definitely are a very good storyteller. Um, I know you write poetry and I've, and I've seen your videos where you've recited poetry as well. I love how you weave all of these personal interests into your professional life as well in a way that enhances your brand. And I'm not sure if you're doing it intentionally, but it, it certainly adds a lot of value. Can you speak to how... Uh, you intertwine these interests into into how you work and yeah into your professional life no, it's it's a cool question because it's it sort of happened very organically and i've discovered a, so i've liked to write as a kid i mean since i was four and i remember even when my dad was at these embassy things and we would have independence day and all i would write you know write these patriotic poems and i would recite them in the embassy and I would write short stories as a kid. So I've always had a love for writing. I did an English minor in college. So that's, that's always been there. The public speaking has happened over the last two, three years after that video came out. And it's an expression of writing. And right, I have really been able to integrate both. And I think it's organic. And I am very grateful because 
my profession gives me a way to integrate my interest really into it. Um, and I don't believe that there's some work-life balance I have to struggle with. I feel like my life is in great harmony because of that. Um, and it also works for me because finance is a really complicated subject. And the idea is in a retail business to make it simple, more accessible and more interesting. A lot of the guys I know use cricket analogies to make finance interesting. Then why can't I use what I like uh, to make my job more interesting? I mean, that was sort of the conclusion I came to three years ago. Because I have no interest in cricket and I have no interest in sport. But I do have other interests. And why, why can't I, if every guy on earth is using a sports analogy to talk about finance, why can't I bring what I like to my profession? That's where the whole seed came from. Mm. And you do it so well. I, I've seen you uh, use examples from how your mother has raised you, for example, to tying that to lessons in finance or lessons in investing. Uh, so yeah, absolutely. You, you do it so well. So final question for you, Radhika, because this is the Conscious Woman podcast. And for us, living and leading with consciousness is a lot about being conscious of one's values and expressing those uh, in one's life with a lot of intention and awareness. So if I was to ask you today, as well as if you look ahead, even let's say to the end of your life, if there were three values that you would want to be associated with your name and your legacy, what would those values be for you? Oh, that's a tough question. No one's ever asked me that. Let me think. Um, I think one, uh, authenticity, uh, just being honest and authentic and real. I think that that matters uh, to me a lot. I guess the biggest compliment I've realized is when someone says, I trust you, uh, you know, I think authenticity comes from that. Um, I think the second is aspiration and sort of just trying to go after things and trying to achieve and trying to, now it doesn't mean you'll always be successful, but there has to be a certain amount of aspiration. Um, and, you know, aspiration doesn't start where you were born or what was it's, it's in your eyes. So I think that, I think authenticity, I think uh, aspiration, and I hope in some way uh, influence, I don't know, positive influence on people's life, in fact, um, a lot of people ask me, you know, what do you work for? And, you know, money is important and career success is important. And over the years of my career, I've evolved to saying that I think for me, what matters the most is impact. Uh, touching people's lives positively is a very, very important thing to me. So if I'm able to do that, I think that that matters. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Radhika. This was a lovely conversation and it was an absolute pleasure to be chatting with you today. Thank you, Bhavna. Thank you for listening. I hope you found the conversation to be insightful. If you did, please do leave us a review as that would be most helpful in helping others discover this podcast as well. To learn more about the work that we do, please go to shinomics.com. We look forward to having you tune in again for future episodes. Until then, may you be well, may you be happy, and may you be at peace. Like this Sochcast? Tune in for more.
with the Sochcast app from the Google Play Store.